Thanks so much for being here. Uh, this is a really nice come down <laughs> after preaching in the um, other venue. It's really relaxing, believe it or not, to actually get to chat and, and talk in a completely different way in terms of in terms of tone, at least. The message will stay the same, so I'm not going to abandon the gospel. Uh, just just uh, just abandon the the. Uh, the, the, the kind of tone that the crowd demands. Okay, um, I, Wayne asked me to talk about contextualizing, and I, I think just um, what I'll do is, is set it up in terms of the, the principle, what we mean by it, what do we mean by contextualizing the gospel. Uh, it sounds like quite a, a sophisticated word. Does it, does it matter? Does it mean anything? Is it important? Um, and then I think talk a little bit about some of the implications of it um, for us in our given context uh, as much as we share any context here, I'd love to talk a little bit about that. The implications for us as uh, leaders on mission um, in, in uh, the time in which we find ourselves. So that's the plan. Before I do that, um, I want to plug a book. Um, some of you have heard of Colin Barron, I expect. Um, in fact, how many of you? Could you raise your hand if you've heard of Colin Barron? Okay, that's, about, that's interesting. Um, Colin's um, <clears throat> a, uh, a, a very good friend and a, uh, a real statesman, really, of church planting. He's, he's been a uh, very fruitful pioneer of church planting in the UK and in the States, but globally as well, by virtue of being involved with the, the New Frontiers uh, family of churches and playing a really key role in serving leaders and helping to get churches pioneered and planted in places all over the world. Uh, he's, he's grown a huge amount of wisdom. He's a... Uh, a um, uh, a quick thinker, a smart thinker, a, a kind of a lateral thinker. He, he sees things the way often others wouldn't, um, and I really appreciate that gift. I think that's a real help in the church often when someone has a just a different perspective, but but nevertheless a biblical one. This is a book about it's about church planting, but uh, uh, I, I would expect it to because I know Colin so well. It's only just come out, so I have to confess I'm plugging a book I haven't yet read, but I feel like I have because I know him. I know what he talks about. Um, it will touch on other themes as well. But I'm, I guess is that there are many of you in this room who are at least thinking about church planting, possibility of it. And if you're not, then people in your youth groups will be, uh, people that you serve will be, people you're involved with, friends of yours. And if that's the case, then you could do a lot worse than get this book. Okay, It's in the bookshop, highly recommended. Colin is a, is a, uh, a practitioner. He's not just a, a kind of armchair expert. He's a very, very hard-working, suffering practitioner, so he's got lessons that they can learn from experience and lots of uh, wisdom he's gleaned from others as well, so recommended, called Multiplanting by Colin Barron. Okay, let's get into this, contextualizing. Um, the distinction between the gospel and culture, I suppose, is what we're talking about when we talk about this. We're talking about the fact that we, we preach the gospel and we want to further the gospel and we want to... Um, help to establish churches for the gospel, but we don't do any of it in a vacuum. We don't do it in a, uh, in a kind of a, a neutral space. Uh, culture is a reality that, that pervades. It, it's, it's, uh, it's, it just grows. You can't stop it. it, it just, it's like in Jurassic Park. Life finds a way. You know? it's just, culture just happens. Um, and uh, we, we have to reckon on that. We have to come to terms with that and be uh, wise about it because the reality is that wherever the gospel goes, it interacts with distinct cultures and different kinds of ways of doing life, ways of being human. Um, and, uh, and 
it means that the gospel needs to essentially learn how to dress native learn how to um, connect with the given context um, effectively uh, it's it's uh, common sense to think that way and foolishness to try to um, uh, present the gospel without without thinking about the, the place that the the normal ways in which people do life in this place it, it's it's going to be it's going to be a, a problem it's going to probably limit the effect limit even the degree to which people will even hear and be able to hear be able to understand the message of the gospel so we have to just reckon on this reality um, the kind of historic examples of this of people doing this well uh, are many uh, Probably the standout one that I tend to go to personally is uh, is James Hudson Taylor, uh, partly because in, in so many ways he's a hero, but 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 also because his example is such a vivid one. Uh, he was uh, in the 19th century uh, trying so hard to establish uh, churches effectively uh, for the gospel all across inland China, very much unreached China. And uh, just multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people who had never had any connection previously uh, with the, the preached gospel. And he, he found out, however hard he tried, that in some cases he would be presenting the gospel and people would be more distracted by, by cultural peculiarities. So he, he would be uh, preaching and people at the end of his presentation would simply say to him, why, is, why do you have the front of your hair uh, long and the back of your hair short? And why do you wear those, those strange narrow trousers that you wear? And, and why is your hair that colour? And why is your beard that colour? And, and he, he, he was, got to the point of frustration that, that however emotional he got and passionate he got and what he thought, you know, anointed in his preaching, there were these cultural stumbling blocks that many people were just distracted. And so he thought, well, the only thing I'm going to have to do is become Chinese, become more Chinese. And obviously he'd learned Chinese. He had preached the gospel in Chinese. That's kind of contextualization 101. You know, you kind of learn the language. But it's a, it's a clue to the rest. It's like, no, there's also further things in a culture that, that make it distinct than the language. So he started to think about how he, he looked. And he, he started to wear Chinese clothes. He even shaved his head completely and grew a kue, a, a Chinese kind of pigtail, for a Mandarin-style pigtail. And he, he started to uh, uh, just look completely different. Now, two things happened. Uh, the mission agencies uh, uh, basically uh, thought he'd gone crazy and, um, and, and started to speak against him. He lost support. He lost funding. He lost a fiancé, or at least nearly, uh, because, because her governess was so offended by what he'd done. Uh, because they, they were under the illusion that uh, uh, Christian culture was English and that Jesus wore uh, Victorian clothes. Um, and so he... he he, he had to deal with the reality that a, a certain understanding had kind of crept in to the, the gospel community. People who love Jesus and love the gospel, but they, they'd kind of got this kind of very strong uh, gut sense, that, without even realizing it, that, that Jesus was only going to be obeyed and understood in a certain kind of idiom. So he, he, he did this and lost a lot of friends and support. But the other thing that happened is that people began to become Christians. Chinese people began to understand the gospel because the cultural roadblocks were removed and it, wasn't, it was like, ah, oh, this man understands me. He's, he's like me. He gets me. 
And it's a very simple illustration of a very important point. It, it, it kind of goes through in all kinds of other ways historically and tem- contemporarily, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's illustrated quite well in that example. I want you to know that it's more than common sense, though. I want you to know that it's biblical. There's theological uh, foundations for this. This is rooted in scripture. Sometimes we, we, we hear about people being contextual. and we, 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 I used to do this. When I used to hear people talking like this, maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, I would tend to think they were kind of slightly looking for excuses to, to, to sell out. I think, well, who cares about contextualizing? Let's just, be, let's just preach the gospel. Let's just preach the Bible. Let's just be really passionate. If we're passionate for Jesus, people will get saved. And I, I was kind of dis- despising the, this contextualizing piece. I didn't really see any good examples of it, perhaps. Maybe some of the people that were into contextualizing that I knew were a bit flaky with the Bible. And so maybe I had some grounds for being a bit dismissive. But in reality, I had to come back to see, no, actually, this is a biblical thing. Think about it. it it's, it's woven into the whole story of the Bible. You think about Babel. You think about Pentecost. You think about what God is doing through the, 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 the epic narrative of Scripture. Uh, how he is uh, judging people by splitting up into splitting the world into different cultures and languages. Uh, that's that's an act of judgment, and yet it's an act of judgment that God redeems through Pentecost. And in the New Testament, we see uh, at the end of the book, Revelation, the tribes and languages, all the different tongues, all the different ethnicities, are not a bad thing, but a good thing. God redeems it. God wants it. And, uh, and it's worth thinking about this. If you if you are uh, to think about differences between Islam and Christianity, of which there are obviously staggeringly important ones, this would be one of them. Um, the, the, the Islam is uh, the, the the view they have of the Quran is is sounds similar to the view we have of the Bible, but the, the idea of it being a holy book is such that you cannot read it properly but in Arabic. You have to read it in Arabic if you really want to read it. You may say, well, I've read the Quran, and, and a, 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 you know, a, a devout Muslim might say to you, well, I don't think you have. You've not read it in Arabic. There's a sacredness about even the tongue in which it's given. That's not true of the Bible. We care about accuracy, so we, we, you know, we'll have people study the Greek and the Hebrew diligently, and that's good. That's very important. But not because the Greek and the Hebrew are sacred at all. In fact, you could say that the Bible is being completed every time it gets translated into a new language. It doesn't mean that the, the new language has authority over the... You know, the Greek and the Hebrew are, are, are the languages God chose in which it's to be written. You, you understand my point. This, 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 this doesn't take away from that. But, but God is in, God's intent is that his word, his wisdom, his truth should be celebrated in every language around the world. Every language. And, and that's one of the features of a restored redeemed creation god wants to redeem languages even such a thing as babel that was an act of judgment god is deliberately intending to to redeem it he loves cultures he wants them celebrated Uh, he loves the ways in which different cultures do things obviously cultures will do a variety of things some will be doing things that are, are wicked and idolatrous in fact all cultures do all cultures do some things that are idolatrous and some things that are not People are made in the image of God. The image of God comes through. It comes through cracked, broken. But it's still there. And so we, we live with that tension um, uh, in every culture. And, and when we're celebrating the gospel in a given culture, we, we need to look for ways to redeem what's good in that culture to make it something that can be brought into um, uh, worship, into devotion, into sacrifice towards uh, the God revealed in Jesus Christ. 
And so this is more than a, a kind of a clever move. It's more than even, it's certainly more than selling out. It's actually a biblical thing. It's not just trying to be clever. It's thinking, you know, we're trying to be faithful to the God, even God himself. How did God reveal himself to us? By becoming one of us, by actually contextualizing himself. This, this says a lot about mission, doesn't it? We've got to learn from the, the king of mission, the, the God who is the great missionary. He is the, he's, he's greater than Hudson Taylor, greater than Paul. You go back to Paul, you see Paul doing it. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 9, I've become all things to all men that I might reach them. He's become a, a Greek to the Greeks, a Jew to the Jew. He's become, he's become anything necessary to get a hearing for the gospel. I will, I'll change everything about myself without sinning. That's the only line I won't cross. Anything I can. And it was serious. It was a big deal for people. Like Timothy, you know, Timothy and Titus got different, different treatment. Titus uh, um, and Timothy are, are Greeks, and one of them gets circumcised and one of them doesn't. You can imagine them kind of waiting in the waiting room. <laughs> Which one's going to be? Uh, it's kind of, I don't think it was you know, in one day. I don't think it's quite like that. But, but the idea is, you know, if, it's, if, I'm, if I can't get a hearing with the Jews, frankly, with a foreskin, then got to go, you know? So Timothy genuinely, you could say he had skin in the game. It's like he, he genuinely, <laughs> genuinely was prepared to contextualize to that degree. And I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, this is a biblical thing. It comes through, but it comes through in Paul and Timothy because it's in Jesus. Jesus himself contextualized, became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the, the one and only full of grace and truth. Do you see? You can't see God without God revealing himself, but without God contextualizing himself. So why would we expect that, I don't know, someone in Yemen or, or someone in, 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 a, uh, in, a, in a very Yemeni part of your city, let's say, or someone in, in, in a suburb in Sydney, Australia, or someone in, in Gambia, or, or someone in a, in a school near you, which is very mixed race, why would we assume that, 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 that they wouldn't need to have some kind of contextualizing for them to, to appropriate the gospel. I'm, I'm trying to share the big biblical principle with you. Now, there is obviously a practical gain for mission in this. We gain some relevance. There's also the eternal gain, which I've been referring to in terms of the redeeming of cultures, the redeeming of languages and so on. But let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the implications of this. And we need to reckon on this. We need to be... Um, we need some gravity about it and some seriousness about it because to take contextualization seriously, to, to intend to contextualize, will make demands on us. Like I said, in Hudson Taylor's case, it lost him friends, lost him support, lost him funding. Because his romantic life, you know, it was a big deal. It's like, wow, this guy suffered to, to uh, reach out effectively to a, to a culture that hadn't been reached. And we shouldn't assume... That, that wouldn't happen to us if we're going to try this. So we've got to think about the potential implications. And I would say that generally my observation is that churches like ours, and I say ours, I, I, I guess I'm, I, I'm from the New Frontiers. I mean, many of us here are as well, but I know there'll be many from all kinds of different churches here too. But churches that are basically kind of legacy of, in terms of the culture is what I mean, um, kind of certainly in the West, um, evangelical in conviction, charismatic in, in experience. Um, uh, lots of features of our churches culturally are things that we've sort of inherited, their styles. And we, we need to be wise about distinguishing what is style, what is, 
what is held because it's a biblical conviction and what is something that's just it's just been assumed because it's just the way that we do things culturally and generally these things will creep in even if we like to imagine that they won't and actually I would say that it's easy as well to think contextualization is a is the sort of thing that people out there should do when they go overseas I think that's probably my story as well I would always admire people who were contextualizing when they went to preach the gospel in a say a Muslim majority country uh, you know, that's like, oh, good for you. Wow, you're learning the languages, you're learning the, you're eating the, you're doing, wow, you're amazing. You're going native. That's so good. That's so the right thing to do. But, but, but slightly offended if someone started to, to operate in the style of the people that live along the road or, the, or even the youth in my city. I think, oh, what are you trying? Just selling out. Stop trying to be trendy. And I'm, there's something inconsistent about that. We, we've honored contextualization as it goes, as it's kind of exported, but questioned it when it's been applied in our own context, our own cultures that we're rubbing shoulders with. We need to start applying it more and more effectively in, our, in the cultures that we rub shoulders with. Simple as that. It's like there's, a, there's an excellent book I'd recommend from a few years back. Um, it's still pretty helpful by Ed Stetzer called Breaking the Missional Code. It's a nice title, Breaking the Missional Code. And he says, it, it's, you know, the book, it's one of those books where the title says, says it all almost, but it's, it's got some good content too. But he says on the back cover of it, he says, missionaries have known this for years. You get the point of saying, look, people have been, who, who do mission carefully and thoughtfully have done this stuff for years. He's saying, now we need to apply it in the West. That's, that's the, the key point that he's making, and I, I guess I'm making here. So there are implications. We need, let me just list a few. We need to think a little bit about the things that we tend to give sacred status to. Be careful about what you give sacred status to. I mean, there are scriptural examples of this, aren't there? You think about in, in Hezekiah's day when one of, the, when one of the idols that he has to demolish, do you remember this? When, when he's kind of purging Judah and Jerusalem of, of the wickedness and idolatry, one of the things that gets destroyed, or at least you know, is dealt with, is the snake that Moses held up, that God told Moses to hold up for the healing of God's people in the wilderness. Moses had been used by God through a particular object, an item, to heal people uh, when a plague came upon Israel. In the book of Numbers you can read this. And it was beautiful. It's a wonderful example of Jesus just working through Moses to bring healing to thousands. It's a wonderful example of healing. And Jesus refers to it in John chapter 3. It's a wonderful story of God's redeeming power. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so uh, the son must be lifted up, a son of man must be lifted up. It's wonderful. In Hezekiah's day, they've turned this wonderful thing into an idol. They've made the serpent itself the thing they worship and venerate. Not the God who's working through it. And that's a lesson right there, deep in the Old Testament, that you see again and again through Scripture as it goes further. How, how we, we, we will apply the status of uh, sacredness to, to things that, that actually they're not meant to be in themselves. And we should be quicker, more ready sometimes to, to, to just sort of, in a sense, throw them off. And we've moved on, we move on from that. That, that, what, that in itself was not the Lord, that was something he used. If you're going to do that, you have to decide what you're throwing off. Some things you throw off wrongly. So you, you ask, I don't know, Uzzah, 
in in uh, in First Chronicles or in 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 First Second Samuel about what what uh, what it's like for him to throw off the rule about don't touch the ark. Don't don't <laughs> don't throw that one off. He paid for that with his life. So there's you got to think. Well, what what's what is sacred? What what are the things that we must hold to, and what things mustn't we? And here's the thing: when you find that there's something that you don't have to hold to, don't hold to it. Be be ruthless. Be strong. Don't be sentimental. Be be gracious. If you've got people in your church who struggle with change, you want to you want to they're, they're sheep that the shepherd cares for. That he loves them. So we must love them too. But we mustn't. We love them by leading them. By helping them, by teaching them, by saying, look, okay, we're going to change this. <gasps> you can't change that. And people, we, we struggle in churches with change. One of my friends came to church and said, the first thing anyone ever said to me in your church was, you're in my chair. <laughs> that was the first thing. And I said, the only time you're allowed to say that is if you're the drummer. So, it's, it's churches tend to be, we tend, for whatever reason, we tend to kind of uh, germinate this kind of thing. Where we kind of, resistant because and it's partly because of our fear i guess of, of something sacred being touched well we need to educate people what's sacred and what ain't what what's con- what's appropriate to to, to 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 deliberately change for the sake of contextualizing and what do you say no 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 don't touch that don't touch that and i think a lot of our theology a lot of our leadership is really about doing that the new testament a lot of the new testament is about that read it read, you'll realize the reason the galatians is in the bible is because of what i'm talking to you about today because of, because of this whole thing of what do they have to be circumcised or not come on let's make a decision is it sacred or isn't it do they have to or not and it's got to be done we've got to do the theology we've got to do it well we've got to do it responsibly we've got to look at our bibles we can't just say well we're cool now christians are supposed to be hip so let's just forget that oh no, no i'll change that i'll do yes behind the times oh come on no one thinks that anymore come on if you want to win people for christ i've had people say that to me if you really want people to be one for christ you're gonna to have to do this and it's something that i know i can't because my conscience won't let me it's like no this is this is the bible this isn't just my preference so we've got to be wise about that we've got to be smart about what's sacred and i would say think, think apply this to everything apply i think to be honest us as people who are uh longing for the power of the holy spirit longing for the supernatural and the, the work of the spirit amongst us we we, we sometimes need help getting over some of the wrong associations of uh, that we we create between the work of the spirit and certain activities that we do that apparently force the Holy Spirit to show up. We, we've got to be careful about that. There might be some, some human things that are, that are helpful, like you know, the keyboard player playing some padding. Yeah, that's, that's nice. I'm not, I guess, yeah, use some padding and keys. Yeah, we, we do that. At New Day, we do that all the time. That's cool. I, I get that. But that doesn't make the Holy... The Holy Spirit's not somewhere else going, <gasps> keyboard padding, I must hurry. I've got to be there. Someone's padding the keyboards. I've got to be there. Oh, I nearly missed it. Sorry, guys, I'm here. I'm here now. <coughs> I've had all kinds of versions of it. You know, he comes when we're silent. Does he? I, I mean, I love silence. I'm well for silence. I don't know whether the Holy Spirit particularly does or not. I mean, maybe he does, but it doesn't. I, I'm just using one example, but you get the point. There's so many styles. John Wimber, some of you, many, I hope many of you have heard of John Wimber. He's one of the one, most wonderful men of God in, in my lifetime. Um, died in 97 so it's quite a long time ago now but remarkable he 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 was most famous for uh his extraordinary anointing in bringing the spirit bringing healing uh he was just wonderful like that had a great gift what's less well known and i've talked to some of his timothys about people who knew him very well 
is that he really practiced his style very carefully. He thought about this a lot. He lived in California at the kind of post-60s, kind of sort of post-hippie sort of hippie sort of age, you know, and he was a musician in a rock band. And he had a lot of thoughts about culture. He understood culture of where he lived. And he watched the way that other healing evangelists did their stuff from the generation before. He watched the way they did it on telly, and it made him sick. And he loved the fact people got healed, but he hated the way they did what they, he hated it. So I just hate that. And, he, and sometimes, I, when I first read that one of his books, I thought, you're not allowed to hate that. That was the Lord. It wasn't the Lord. It was the, the dress, it was the clothes those people wore. It was, you could say it was the clothes the Lord was wearing at that time. It was the culture, it was the context. The Lord was doing the healing. The Lord was doing the wonderful work. We need to think, like, to get, be, be smart, be brave about distinguishing these things. So Wimber, he used to spend time practicing his style. He used to do completely the opposite of the way that these others did it. On purpose, to think, I've got to learn a new way, a new manner. Uh, so so that's, that's an example of, of uh, implication, things we, we need to think about when it comes to sacred status. Uh, secondly, the things the gospel connects to. How does the gospel connect with a culture? Now, the gospel connects with every culture, to be sure. No question whatsoever. What you'll find is that some cultures are more sensitive to certain uh, neuroses, pathologies, needs that, uh, that humanity is, is only served by through the gospel. If, if you put it, put it through the, the lens of guilt and shame, uh, you, you get what I'm saying. Some cultures, especially in the West up until this last couple of generations, were mostly focused, almost obsessively, on the issue of guilt, moral guilt. Not particularly interested so much in the issue of shame, not, not to the same degree. Guilt was the issue. Other cultures around the world, perhaps further ori- oriental culture, further in the east, and certainly in, in the Middle East as well, uh, would, would, would be less directly affected, less obviously affected by issues of guilt, moral guilt, transgression of moral laws that are universally applied and we should all abide by. And if you don't do these moral things that we all accept are right or wrong, we, we, we feel guilt. We feel a, a sense of personal guilt of having transgressed and made and offended a moral lawgiver. Not so much in, 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 in Eastern cultures generally where there's far more emphasis on shame. Far more emphasis, probably you could say it a little bit like this, it's not so much about what I've done but what I am. Uh, what, I, what I am also by association, what I belong to. And that's why it tends to be something that's very corporate. It tends to be quite affecting, it affects family and tribal relationships. If you bring shame, you bring it not just on yourself, but on your family. And it needs to be dealt with. We need to deal with the shame that's come upon us. Westerners tend not to know much about that. We don't really, th- what are you talking about, shame on your family? Who cares about your family? You're, you're you, you be you, you do you. You don't say that in the East. It's not, not generally. It's not. It doesn't. It's very different. And we need to be smart in terms of how we present the God. What is the, uh, the presenting and the I guess the heartfelt need that the human heart has here that the gospel remedies, the gospel serves and helps. Now, to be sure, without the help of the Holy Spirit, people will not respond to the gospel anyway. So I, I don't want to miss that. 
And, and sometimes people's guilt may not seem to be presenting itself, but the Spirit can suddenly make them feel guilty in a moment, and they suddenly realize they need a Savior. And that's what we should pray for. But when we're presenting the gospel, to get people understanding the value of it, the use of it, if you like, we should be sensitive to, to how does this culture relate to, to evil, the, the, the problem of fallenness? How does their fallenness affect them? Do they, do they, some cultures, it's not even about honor or shame so much. It's more about power, fear. Some animistic cultures, very, you know, very uh, what we you know, might call primitive cultures, where, where it's, it's, it's actually not really about morality or shame or honor. It's about fear of spiritual powers. Well, the gospel can't help them, can it? Because it's, it's what does the gospel have to say about that? Plenty. <laughs> Plenty. You read the Bible, you realize, oh, wow, that's what, that's what we're sent to do, to set people free from evil spirits. So we need to think, we need to think how does the gospel relate to this particular context? Um, I'm, I need to rush. Uh, the gospel connects to different cultures in, in distinct ways. Third thing, what does the gospel do for us as the missionaries, as the, the youth leaders, the pastors? Well, I should have said this first, but, but if, if I'm going to be used by Jesus to present Jesus to people, I need Jesus to do his work on me first. You could, you know, contextualization sits there if it sits anywhere. It's, it's so much about us assuming the posture of a servant, one who comes to serve and not to be served. The same, saying, I, I've got, I'm, I, am, I need Jesus as much as anybody I preach to. If I forget that for a moment, I'm in serious danger. <laughs> I've got to keep staying in that place. I, I, am, I am, need Jesus you need Jesus, but tell, I tell you, I am more aware of my need of him than, than yours. And, and learning to just abide there, it's a good, it sounds, I'm, it could sound melancholic. I promise you it isn't. I'm not saying get introspective and morbid at all. This is a joyful place to be. Abide in the vine. Only, you can only bear fruit in the vine, which means saying, Jesus, I've got nothing. Without you, I can do nothing. And that's what Jesus, Jesus showed us how to do that. He said, I can only do what the Father shows me. I, I, he lived that way. We live that way as we abide in him. And contextualization helps us to do that because it, it kind of humbles us. We go into a culture and we mustn't assume the role of the person that knows everything, understands and, and is able to fix and, and arrange everything exactly how we, we arrange everything. Remember when... Um, I lived in Cape Town for, for uh, after I left school for a year in Africa. I spent about eight months in Cape Town, and the, the the word that most township people had for white people was the word umlunga. I said, "What does the word umlunga mean?" And they said, "It means organizer, organizer." And you, that, that tells you a lot, doesn't it? About the way a whole multitude of people have seen white people. That's what you do. You just you, you know better than us. You come around and you just you know everything. We don't know anything, so you just organize everything. I, don't, I think that's probably not the heart of Jesus. When you look at how he was in John chapter 13. You know, he, knowing he come from the Father, he's going back to the Father. Everything he knows, he, he takes off his robe, he puts on a towel, he kneels down, he washes their feet. This is God contextualizing. So we need some, I find this hard. This is, it sounds kind of romantic when I say it. It's all kind of sweet and poetic. We all get dewy-eyed. It's painful, actually really contextualizing sets you back you have to unlearn some things you have to feel a bit embarrassed a bit ashamed of silly things you say or and it's good for us uh final piece on this 
how uniform is postmodern millennial culture? That's, that's an implication for us. So I'm talking about contextualizing. The right question to ask might be, into what? There are so many cultures. There are so many subcultures. There are so many parts of our, our uh, cities. So many, you know, there's middle class, there's working class, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's underclass, there's, there's traditional working class, and there's, 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 there's all kinds of different stratas socioeconomically. There's different ethnicities. There's different, you know, even amongst youth culture. People, I, you know, sometimes I, 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 find I get a bit cynical about the phrase youth culture because there's not one youth culture. There, I, you know, I know enough about music to know <laughs> there's a few. Uh, there's quite a few, so many that I can't keep up, as you probably expect. And, and, and so we, we need to think, what, 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 is there anything that's nevertheless constant? Are there some constants that seem to prevail in more than one locality, uh, more than one kind of human node? And the answer is yes, I think there are. The reason I say that is because, because of globalization, because of urbanization, uh, because of the, the, the kind of extraordinary um, acceleration of availability of higher education, um, uh, because of uh, digital uh, technology. We, we live in a, in a day that is radically different than the, the, the day of even just 20 years ago, let alone 50 years ago. Um, the world is increasingly similar in certain places. Not not every place. So that's, the, that's the burden of my talk today. But there, there is a strange degree of uniformity, kind of homogenizing, that is not being done by force, by some imperial military power, but by the internet, by digital phones, by, uh, by all kinds of cultural assumptions that are prevailing across the West, but not just the West. Usually, any big urban centre globally, you will find people who will think and operate and live pretty much the same as they would in any other big urban centre. A 20-year-old in Nairobi will probably have increasingly more in common with a 20-year-old in Amsterdam than he or she will have with his parents, which in many ways is tragic. Um, it's not necessarily a good thing to celebrate, but it's a reality for us at least in terms of how we do gospel work. Because I, just, this, just the way that people are informed and influenced so phenomenally by global marketing, global uh, media, which is becoming increasingly powerful to affect the way we think and think, and, uh, sorry, think and, and feel. A friend of mine lives in Nairobi. Um, he said to me a few years, he's a pastor actually, he spoke at New Day a few years ago. He said to me, I, I, I lived in Nairobi when I, in 1994, just for a few months. I said to him, what would it be like if I went there again? Last time I was there was so long ago. He said, you would not recognize it. You would not recognize it. When I went to Nairobi, there was one cinema and it showed one film for the whole of the three months I was there. And it was a film that was about 10 years old. And it wasn't very good from, from America. Uh, it just, that, was, that was it. That was, in terms of mainstream media, that was kind of it. From the West, I mean. From the West. Uh, if you go to Nairobi now, he said, everyone, every student, every undergrad, and there are many more of them, many more universities teeming with late teens, early 20-somethings, with phones, 
who just live on the internet, live on the big, huge platforms. They just live on YouTube, Facebook, and they're being indoctrinated, instructed away from their, their mother tongue, away from their moorings, away from their traditions, what they would have inherited. They're in these urban kind of flattening worlds that absorb people into a way of seeing the world that is increasingly uniform. We need to think about that in terms of how we do mission. I don't, I'm not going to tell you what the answers are, but I think that's a reality for us to come to terms with a little bit uh, as we think about contextualising. I'll stop there and uh, we'll do some, some questions. We'll be standing. So helpful, wasn't it? Let's, uh, let's thank Joel. Okay, so, so Joel, a lot of that was very much the principles and lots of questions that have been coming through is then the practicality of, of what, is, what does this then look like in our, in our context. So I'll kick off with the first question. What, what do you see are some of the cultural hang-ups that our churches have that stop us seeing people accessing the gospel and potentially then getting saved? Sure. I, th- I think um, what I see, so it's a, it's a good question, the way you framed it, what do you see? So I'll tell you what I see. And I think that you've got to remember that you will see things in, in your way, differently in your context as well. I, I've seen um, uh, a tendency to, um, uh, to, to associate, as I, I guess I said earlier, uh, the work of God with, with certain trappings, um, which... Um, I think people don't realise how how much uh, they ca- can have been influenced by by a consumerism that is built around experience, and so my my um, uh, biggest sort of the people who found it most painful, I'm being very honest with you, to go the journey we've gone on in, in mission in my city have sometimes been people who thought I'm not getting the experience that I want to have from church at the moment. I'm not, I, I come for an experience. And um, uh, there's, we have to just be sm- wise about what, when we hear that, what does that mean? Uh, can we unpack that? What do you expect? Why do you think that? Why, why do you think, what, do you, what are you going for? And how, why do you feel entitled to that? Do you feel entitled to that? Because there's a side to that which is, I think, quite appropriate. I want to experience Jesus because I love him and I want to know him and I, I feel sad when I don't feel his, his presence. I get that. But if we turn that into a sort of a consumerist version where it's like, it's almost, I, I come to get my hit and it's, it's not, I'm almost not noticing the person behind it. It's not really about, gee, I say Jesus, cause, you know, but really it's a feeling. It's a kind of, I, I must have, I must get my, my quota and if you're not meeting my quota, then I've got to go somewhere else. I've got to, I've got to, I, you know, it's, it's, this is very sensitive and, and fragile. It's a delicate thing because often these are people that I really love and honour and, and respect and, and walk with for decades, some of them. So I, I don't say this flippantly at all. And I think you can be flippant. I think we can be silly and sort of say, you know, just make people out to be glory, you know, just to make them sound childish when they're not. They're trying to express it. And for me, it's an issue of discipleship. It's, it's helped people to see, if I love Jesus, what's Jesus like? He leaves the 99 to find the one. If he sees a room full of 100 people, he, he really will tend to look for the person who's, who's furthest from him in that room. That means the closer I get to Jesus, 
the more I will feel the same as him. I will care about the one more than I will about, in a sense, my, my own, I want church to be my way this week. Um, and, and so I'll learn to think, they don't do my favorite songs anymore. But, you know, I can sing them on the way home. You know, I can, I, I love Jesus. I, I'm walking with Jesus, you know, and, and I, I, I know that that person got a step closer today. And so I, I'm, I'm really, really pleased about that. And we, we help people with that. To be honest, the old people in our church have been doing this forever. <laughs> Anyone who's in their 80s in my church has been contextualizing for way longer than me. Because they've they just been coming to church. Are they, you've ever been to a funeral of someone in their 80s in your church? Have you noticed the, the hymns they choose? For the, I want these hymns in my funeral, please. And it's like revenge. It's like, <laughs> you please choose some hymns with words in them. And, and it's like, yeah, and it's so ironic. And you listen, you, you, the hymns come up and you think, flip, we should do these hymns. These are way better than our songs. These are good. They've got words in them. They're amazing. And then, and then it's just ironic. You know, the person in the room who's supposed to enjoy it the most is in a box. It's like, it's just kind of, that's so ironic. You know, the one time they get church the way they want it is when they're dead. And maybe there's something in that. You know, maybe there's a message for us. It's like, you know, that's the whole point. You know, it's, you know. I, for me to live is Christ. I, I, I have Jesus. I have all things. And so discipleship is about people to say, I, 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 it's my, my responsibility is to connect with Jesus. And part of equipping the saints is equipping them to, to feed themselves and teach themselves. Now, it's almost like a, a gradation. The most immature, more immature a Christian is, the more you have to feed them. The more mature a Christian is, the more you don't have to feed them in the same way. You do, but not quite in the same way. You feed them with meat, not with milk. What we tend to do by accident is this. You get people who, who are actually, they think they're more mature because they're saying, why are we so bothered about these non-Christians in our meetings? Who cares? I care about the glory. Stop caring about these non-Christians. I want the Lord. And they think they're being mature. I actually think they're being immature. They're, they're doing this. They're, they're making out that their spirituality is, is presented by a certain carelessness, which is why Paul says what he says to the Corinthians. He, 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 he rebukes them in 1 Corinthians 14 because they're being immature. He's saying the way you're behaving is making non-Christians leave your meeting saying you're out of your mind. And, and he's saying that's a bad thing. <laughs> I've honestly been in meetings where we've had non-Christians leave in in total confusion and Christians almost put it as a feather in their cap honestly almost like kind of whoa they couldn't cope you know too bad you can't stand the heat get out you know this is this is a spiritual place if you can't cope you shouldn't you don't belong here and Paul says no other way around if they're leaving that's because you're not caring for them you're not thinking about them so I mean to be oh sorry I'll ramble I'll do one last point on this I get the fact that, but you could hear, miss, hear what I've said so far and think you're therefore saying there should be no context where we go deeper, if, you know, where the spiritual experience should be more, I don't know, linger for longer and all that, that sort of that sort of sense of worship times that go longer. Where you, and I, I think I, 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 I'm increasingly aware that we've got to be wise about how we we don't see that necessarily as a wrong thing, but we we genuinely look for ways to serve that. We, we look for, so in my church what we try and do more and more is we think what's the environments where we can really release people and help people to enjoy together uh, that, that sense of the Lord's presence we still care for the non-Christians always assume there's a non-Christian in the room 
maybe not at elders' meetings, but, you know, <laughs> maybe not. I mean, Jesus had one in his team. Um, but um, if, if, if you kind of just always have, even, even when you have got those half nights of prayer or, you know, longer worship times or come and, come and receive, whatever you call them, still be, get wise about how you serve people, but treat different meetings for different things. I think for us, we've thought, what does Sundays do that those meetings can't do? And what do those meetings do that Sundays can't do? And think, right, play that way. Think, achieve things here that you can't there and vice versa. That's my, con- so your question was, what do you see? That's, that's what, and different churches need to find their way and get real wisdom on this because the tension isn't going away. I don't think we can solve it by just saying, oh, let's just forget it and be spiritual. No, you can't do it. Neither can you solve it by saying, oh, who cares about these silly experiential people? Let's just be missionaries. Both wrong. Both wrong. So we're always going to have to live with the tension. And someone said, we need to let leaders, wise leaders know the difference between a problem to be solved, okay, where you say, snap, done it, problem solved, and a tension to be managed. You get the point. Leaders know, oh, no, that's, that's never going to go away. That's a tension. That's a biblical tension. Let's manage it. Let's manage it wisely. Is that helpful? Okay, so there's a, been quite a few questions on, on style and then culture. So, so this question I think is quite good at just taking a, that a little bit deeper of what you're saying. So if, I've noticed you, you guys at Emmanuel have really valued contextualizing. You see it in how you dress, you behave, and how you do your meetings. Can you talk about how you've practically done that? So some of the real kind of nuts and bolts of that. I, I don't, I, I mean, it's nice for you to say, I don't think that we're, I think we're always learning. I think we, we, it, some of it's quite funny because anything you're learning, you make dumb mistakes with and you, you, you get it wrong and, and, you, and you get a reputation for being contextual and I think it's hilarious because I just think I'm, I'm just total novice. Um, so I, I think um, things that we have done, um, gosh, um, I guess some of it would have come through in my previous answer. So I think just thinking about what you're doing publicly thinking carefully about how you present the gospel when you're doing something public, when you're gathered. Um, what you're, if, you know, if your philosophy of, of what you do on Sundays fits with what I've said just now, if it does, it might not. You might think, I just don't see Sundays like that. I just don't. I see Sundays as for the saints exclusively. And I'm I just, I, I just not going to change. I'm, I'm, honestly, that's your, if you're a leader here, if you're an elder in a church, you've got to be persuaded. You've got to, be, you've got to go with what you've got conviction for you've got to play it the way that's right in your place but I, I would say if you, if you agree with the principles that I'm trying to go for and if you agree with the, uh, the basic idea of thinking about the public thinking about the Sundays I think, I think that generally is where the controversies come in in my experience for, for people in western churches um, the controversies come in less when it comes to what you do through small groups so or what you do even in your individual witnessing. You can try anything that's unusual and weird to reach people in a, in a different culture than you in your city or wherever. And most, no, no one is likely to really be offended in one of our churches. We all get it. Everyone's going to go, oh, you're doing a small group that's basically a yachting group or a skateboarding group. And after 10 weeks of skating with these people, you're going to mention Jesus and hope they come next term and then, next term, and then gradually... S- stretch it so that you get the gospel in more and more and more I don't think that's I mean some of you might think that's controversial I think that's kind of totally normal it's just kind of fair enough you know just whatever by all means win some I think where it's where, you, where it scratches people is where it hits what we've been already talking about the, the public side the gathered 
the big macro church that we do together. That's where it feels like, ah, don't touch that. You can fiddle with the small groups, but don't fiddle with my Sunday. Um, and um, I, I think that's generally been, been my experience. I, I would say, nevertheless, that thinking wisely about smaller communities, how to be mission in small communities, is really good. A, a, one resource that I would really recommend on that would be, um, there's a few chapters in Dave Ferguson's book called Exponential, uh, where he talks about small group life that's missional, uh, which is really, really excellent. And Exponential by David, Fer- I think David and John, I think they wrote it together, uh, Ferguson. And there's some stuff on small group life, which is excellent. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't, I'd just get that rather than try and reinvent the wheel for my answer. Joe, so there's um, a few questions um, just, I suppose, from a, from being a church leader. So so just the tension of youth leaders in the room that are saying, okay, practically, how, how do you work with church leaders where you can see things that they should just let go of, but yet they seem to hold that tightly and, and doesn't really relate with young people? Um, and then just contextualize, like, how do you contextualize for your young people in your church as, as leadership? I think um, when you're when you're uh, in a t- tension with someone who's s- senior to you in your church, um, uh, you, you, that's a big thing to handle and to get right. And you must always do the honouring thing, the gracious thing. You must you must uh, you know. Paul says in Romans, outdo one another in showing honour. <laughs> I love that verse. Like compete with each other over what. What do we compete? How, how, what are we allowed to be? Comp- well, the competitive people like their ears prick up. Oh, there's a verse in the Bible about competing. I like it. Tell me what I'm supposed to compete over. And it says over showing honour to each other. Oh, <laughs> all right then. So the thing we're encouraged to compete with is, is how we, we show the other person honour. And I think for young leaders, it's an old old story. It's very normal for a youth leader to think I know what will make this church amazing, and the senior pastors to say no, no, we're not doing that. And the young person to think, well, I'm going to read to you the story of David and Saul in the Bible about the young, noble, wonderful leader and the Saul, the evil king who tried to destroy it. And, uh, and, and th- th- this young youth leader can get into a slight delusion. It's like, be careful, be careful. You, it, I'm, I'm being cheeky. It might be literally, you may even have a leader who's actually getting missing something significant. But even then, Generally, what I would urge you to do, what I, what I think, it, I built a quote from Bill Hubbles from years ago, become a force that cannot be denied. So if, you, if you're up against something, you think, I cannot get traction, I'm trying something, but the, the leadership isn't, isn't into it, the culture isn't right, you won't achieve anything good by bickering, rebelling, being bitter, being, gossiping, saying, oh, we would, we would do it, but the flipping elders won't let us. And, you know, it's always the elders. You never name anyone. It's always the elders because you can get away with criticizing the elders because that's just a collective noun. And uh, if you say someone's name, you feel your conscience gets pricked. So you say the elders. And uh, that's just be careful. Whenever you get into that, just watch. Um, if, you, if you allow that spirit in, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to feed something. It's going to get ugly and you will potentially bring division. And you, you do not want to be that in a church. So handle it carefully. Think about the relationships. Think about how to show honor. I was talking with a friend last night about how he had to handle this in a big way when he, he, he conflict with the, the team that led him and how he worked hard with his wife to honour them in the way he eventually needed to leave, move on from that church. But it was he did it deliberately, took time over it. That's good. Becoming a force that cannot be denied, it, it means effectively kind of prove what you're saying. Uh, show it. I, I'm like I'm, I'm speaking as a team leader in my local church. If someone comes to me with an idea with words, 
show me. That's, that's always my attitude, rightly or wrongly. <laughs> I'm just like that. And most senior leaders probably are. They probably are. They need to be a little bit because they have to, a lot of their life, if they're, gonna, if they're a wise leader, they have to spend quite a lot of their life saying no to people. Any leaders that don't say no are just going to, they're just silly. You just end up with churches that are a bit messy. So leaders must say no. They got, that's their job. Don't be, don't be offended if they say no. Prove it. Find ways, incremental ways, where just gradually show. And, and you end up potentially, if it goes right, you end up becoming a force. You end up with something that's like, it's obvious to see the hand of God on it. So, oh my, oh, I get it now. God's in this. this is, that's fine. And I've noticed that with myself, with other leaders that I really respect, that, that they can be dead set against something when they first hear about it. But they take time to watch and see and consider. It takes sometimes a while. Give leaders time. Do, give, be patient. If they're godly leaders, there's a, there's a chance that they're going to they'll be persuaded if you're right. But it, it will take more than arguments and words and long emails. It, it, that that's not that fruitful on its own it, they're going to watch for a lot more than your emails they're going to watch you they're going to watch your character they're going to watch the legacy they're going to watch are you fruitful if you're married they're going to watch your marriage watch your money they're going to watch you know they're going to watch for anything they can and hopefully you'll you'll gain some traction and you'll be more and more persuasive and then you get not you don't just get a chance to do your thing who cares about that you get you get trusted that's worth way more, way, way more. The people in my church that I trust, the leaders in my team that I trust the most, some if not most of them, are people I have the most conflict with, the most of this kind of stuff. Because you've been through the awkward stuff and they've just had to fight through it and argue and, oh, you don't get it, no, you don't get it. And just what you build over time is often this profound, actually those people that I, I could just leave them, I could leave them on an island and just within, I'll come back in 10 years, they would have built a church that I love because we get each other and that's, that's worth anything, that's worth gold. So, so I would say be patient, be humble and look for the better thing than just your project. Look for relationship and trust, which is worth more. We've got time for another just do one, one more because there's a few on, on culture. We've literally just got two minutes. So, um, so this one says, how do you contextualize the gospel for working class young people, often from broken or chaotic homes, but also just from a different culture as Christianity is, is often overla- overwhelmingly middle class? So just uh, yeah. I, think, I think there are um, uh, lots of obvious things I could say that others could say better than I and you could get in good books. So I will say something that I don't hear very often. But I would say, um, don't underestimate the degree to which working class people are more straight talking than, than middle class people. And are sometimes a bit, whether they say it or not, I'm convinced they are, they are tired of being patronized by nice Christian lovey-lovey talk. Um, and I think they, they, there's probably a bit of a gender thing, maybe. Don't, don't over-apply what I'm saying. I'd say especially young men, but it won't just be young men. But there will be a, sometimes a, a longing for someone to speak straight to them and to be quite, sometimes even to the point of it being quite strong and aggressive. I tell you, I, I, working class people, they, 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 they are more likely to see through it when we try to make it all about just constant affirmation, constant affirmation. And uh, in the end, people know it can't just be that. They know that there's a call, there's a, 
there's a line to cross there's a there's a warrior that I'm called to get behind and and that stuff in my life is not right and it's I need to repent and 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 there's that stuff is actually no one says that anymore so when you say it it's like what did you what and it, it, they might be offended but that's better than them being glazed right and I, I'd say my experience, I, I taught in a school in North Tyneside when I lived in Newcastle. For, for, and my experience of teaching genuinely underprivileged from children from a very, very underclass, very broken socially, economically. The school that I taught in at the time, the thing that made it excel was that they loved the children enough to be quite strong with them, quite firm with them. Now, you, there's, a, there's a, a civic authority issues there. That a school is different than a youth group, obviously. And, and so there's totally different means and sanctions. And I'm not talking about that at all. But you know and I know that there's a difference between being a wet fish with someone and being like Jesus, who was never like that. And, and we, just, we just need help with that. So there's, I could say so many other things, but I think that's the thing I rarely hear. So let's, let's go with that one.